Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And welcome to the Investor Coaching Show. Paul Winkler. Talking money and investing. And the news of the day, things being talked about out there. Joined with Mr. Ira Work. And this good, hour. Good afternoon. Man, how you doing? I am doing well. So well that... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> that you'd have to have a party for me if I was doing any better. Okay. All right. That, that works for me. All right. So uh, I know that you and I have been perusing the financial media and things out there uh, and ran into the same exact article. Very I interesting mean, I mean, article. I think it's a sign we ought to really talk about it. What do you think? Uh, absolutely. Okay. So it was the exact age when you make your best financial decisions and... Uh, you know, it's uh, this to me is something near and dear to my heart because I've talked about it before. There was a really good book by Arthur Brooks, and it was all about that. It was about the two stages that we go through in life. We have first stage, and you have you know fluid intelligence is what he called it. And in essence, what happens is we. We're able to gather information. We're able to solve problems. We're able to create things. I mean, you look at the best songs, the best songs that people write, typically in their 20s. Mm-hmm. After that, they don't write anything that's worth it. <laughs> I'm, you know, songwriters out there, sorry. I mean, that's, that's just what they found in the research. If you write a really, really good song much later in life, it's an accident. <laughs> and sometimes all they write is one. <laughs> it's what? It's one. You, know, you have all those one-hit wonders. Oh, yeah. Yeah, probably. Uh, so, the uh, so so if we look at what happens later on in life, we have a crystallized intelligence, which is wisdom, and I think that's a lot what they were talking about here. But you know, I think it's interesting when it comes to financial decisions when we make our best financial decisions, when that when that tends to happen, and what did you take out of it? I'll, I, I'll, I'll have my takes on it, but what are some of the takes you had on it, Ira? Well, one of the reasons why this struck me the most is that it seems that most of the clients that do come in to see us, or I should say investors that come in to see us before they actually do become clients, mm-hmm. are probably in their earlies to later 50s. Mm-hmm. And they've been through enough financial advisors, they've gotten all the promises, They've seen all the glossy mountain charts with the past performance, and they're wondering why their investments are not working out the way these investments they were sold did in the past. They got some wisdom. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's like, how, how do you get good judgment? Have bad judgment. <laughs> That's why we tell you, learn from our mistakes, you know, our kids, right? Learn from our mistakes. You're going to make enough on your own, but learn from ours. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, they've had three or four, sometimes five different advisors. Sometimes they got two or three advisors at the same time. 
And they're coming to us because they're unsure, are they really doing what's right? Oh, that's funny, because I remember talking to uh, an NFL f- football player. Uh, this guy was you know, always on the all-star team every single year, and he had two different financial advisors, and I asked him, so why, what's going on here? And he goes, well, they're watching each other. Yeah, no, they're not. <laughs> like, no, they're not. And, <laughs> and I know they're not. <laughs> they're co-signing each other's BS so well, that they keep their, job, not, keep their jobs. Well, I don't even know if they're co-signing. <laughs> I don't even think they're talking to each other. I mean, I shared a few months back. No, that's true. You did. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You're, you were the smart guy of the two is what the other financial advisors. <laughs> and then he wanted he wanted me to adjust our portfolios because of the bad decisions he was making with his portfolios for them. <laughs> okay. That's just too, too ironic. Yeah. But the thing, you know, so some of the things that stuck out to me were how things change the older we get into our 50s. Now I'm 62, and it's amazing that a lot of these were actually in my early 40s, but that's why I'm in the business. So car loans, people usually wake up around 49.6, 49 and a half years old. They start to realize, wait a second, maybe car loans are not such a good thing, and car loans typically become minimized. Credit cards? My grandfather wore me out not to take a car loan when I was coming out of college, just wore me out. And he was he was the patriarch. You don't ignore the patriarch of the family. <laughs> and you know, you know what I did? I, I did, I ignored him. But you know what? It, about four years later, when I got it paid off, I never looked back, I never did it again. But, because he was right. <laughs> okay, and I have, a, I have a really good friend of mine, um, about 25 years or so ago, he took a car loan, mm-hmm. and took a five-year note, and the money went in, out of his out of his uh, uh, check, his work, his you know, work check from work, mm-hmm. to this separate account. And every month, the money got deposited into that you know at the credit union to this separate account to pay the car loan. Mm-hmm. Well, at the end of five years, the car was paid off, but he never thought, "Hey, let me stop doing this. Let me sort of set up a sinking fund to buy the next one." And that's exactly what he did. And he has not had a car loan in twenty years because every ten or twelve years now, he has enough money to just go and buy the car for cash. Right, right. Which I think, which is a sinking fund concept. Right. Which, which that is what a big corporation will do for large ticket items. They call it a sinking fund. Mm-hmm. It's the so, same thing we ought to do now. I don't necessarily have a problem with a car loan. Um, I just bought a new car, and I did take a loan. I noticed that. Okay. I noticed that. That thing is that thing's fun waiting to happen. It, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> um, but I was fortunate where I was able to get a 0.9% interest rate. Now, when your grandfather said, don't take a car loan, interest rates were probably like they are today. Six and seven percent. Well, I, I often wonder though, and I've had people tell me that no, this is not the case. Do they p- push up the price of the car if you actually have a low interest rate, and that's the way they make money? No, the car would have been the same price no matter whether I wrote a check or whether I took the loan. Because I asked them, well, how much room is there for me to negotiate? And she's like, none. And I mean, I bought the car. There was it's a it's a little Mazda Miata. Uh, so it's not this high-end, fancy supercar. So what you're saying to move cars right now? They're they're using that to move cars, and you know, in 
in my mind, that makes some sense. If you're having a hard time moving vehicles at the current prices, that you might do something else to get them to move. Just because if they don't move, you end up with this big inventory and you can't, you know, what do you do as a car company? I mean, you've got to get somebody to take these things off your hands if they're built. And that's basically what they're doing. And they're willing to take it on the chin in the financing a little bit. Well, but again, it surprises me that they have no negotiation on the car whatsoever. No. So they had, I was, I was, I was watching the inventory. I had to wait about five or six weeks to get the car to come in, for the car to come in. Mm-hmm. And they literally had six Miatas in transit. Okay. One of them was mine. Mm-hmm. Five of them said sold. So they were sold before they okay, even so hit the lot. Okay, so this is this this one this particular car was a hot commodity. That makes more sense to me. Right, that you would have no negotiating room on something that's a hot commodity. And okay. also, that zero point nine percent interest rate was only for three years. If I if it was a four or five or six year, the rates were between five and a half to six and seven percent. But that makes no sense to me, still, Ira, because if I am a if I'm a car company, I'm a car lending company. Am I going to lend you money for three years at 0.9, or I'm going to go down and you know put money in treasury bills backed by the government at three and a half percent? I I I don't see how that how I would do that. That's that seems there's some bad business decision being made there. <laughs> well, that's probably why you and I are not the CEO of. Mazda. I'm just entirely too logical for this. <laughs> no, because there's actually, you know, as you know, there's profit built into the car, so they're making the profit on the moving of the vehicle, and there's there's money to be but made. But they're not trying to move the thing fast. That's, that's the thing. It's that they're not trying to move because they would have had it sold to somebody else, you know, because they had those other cars. That that's just that's just weird. That's just maybe that is why we're in the we're in the position we're in with corporate uh, corporations around the world right now because maybe there's not a lot of thinking going on in the boardrooms. So are you saying they're losing money by lending by selling the car to me for 0.9 percent? Well, they're losing money on the financing. If they could find another buyer to pay cash, I don't know because when I bought my other last car, my Volkswagen Eos. Again, not a, not, not, not a big fancy high-performance car, uh, not a big-end luxury car. Um, <clears throat> same thing, bought it at the MSRP and had 0% financing. So I paid it out over five years. So my point being really this, and this is really the it, more important part They're losing part of the money. I think, and yeah, I think go back to the point because they're, they're losing money and that's their problem. I don't think they're losing money. Well, I mean, they're losing money on the financing. They could be, you know, they could find somebody else to pay cash for it. Then you, who would have, and that would have been you if they if they wouldn't have financed it at that rate. It would have been you anyway. Oh yeah, I would have bought the car because I told the girl, you know, let's run the credit, get me locked in because I'm not going to be paying five, six, seven percent. Right. You know, but if my money can make money, being staying invested. Why would I not want to take a loan at 0.9%? I totally agree. It was a good decision on, you know, for your part if they weren't going to negotiate on price. Yeah, I agree. Right. I just think it's funny that they would make such a bad business decision, in, in my humble opinion. Yeah. But anyway. Well, anyway. <laughs> um, home equity loans are 55 and a half or almost 60 years old. They realize that financial mistakes are minimized by the age of 55 and, and point nine. Yeah, I don't think most people recognize that home equity loans uh, callable. 
You know, so the bank, if they get panicked, they can call it, and then you've got to figure out some way to repay it. I don't think most people recognize that. I haven't seen one yet that isn't callable. Let me put it that way. But how many banks have you ever seen call them? Um, well, I think there's one very famous financial person. <laughs> That's basically what happened to him. <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, moving. Yeah. So, yeah. Home equity lines. I'm not a, not a big fan of those things, uh, you know, just because I think that it it puts the person in danger. And yes, I, I had this conversation with a banker not so long ago. At what point would you call it? And he says that they'd have to be behind. And of course, if they're, be, if they're behind on the payments, um, then yeah, you could end up with a situation where it ends up being called. So just recognize that nobody ever thinks about the idea that they might be that person that ends up behind because of something unforeseen that happens in their particular world. But are they callable? Yeah. Can they be called? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, how often are they called? I don't know the statistics on that, but I know that that is what causes them to be called because the bank doesn't want your, you know, they don't want the, uh, well, I guess they might want your home, uh, depending on how nice your home, but they really don't. No, they don't. <laughs> um, and that's why for the most part, it's um, very... What's the word I would want to use? Um, uh, Just rare that it happens? or No, it's why the foreclosure market, you're getting such bargains in the foreclosure market. Because all banks are really looking to do is recapture yeah. the loan amount. Yeah, they that, don't care. That's right. You know? and that, and that's a really good point. You think about it. That is a really good reason because you know, you're going to end up a statistic to them. And you know, you don't want to be in that position, but home equity. So, so people aren't, they're, they're paying off their home equity lines, what you're saying there. Mm -hmm. They realize also like credit card late fees. They pretty much wake up to those at about the age of 52. That late, really? Yeah. That's interesting to me. You know, another thing like that, like my, for example, that they, the mistake that they make and they start to wise up to this, you know, more so into their early fifties is, Refi you know, transferring a balance from one credit card to another credit card. And, you know, with all these 0% interest rates being sure, out there. Sure, I've seen people do it, yeah. Okay. Um, and there was another interesting article about that uh, this past week. Um, and I, it made me realize my sister did the same thing. She made the same mistake. She, tra she refinanced her house, mm -hmm. took money out of that to pay off her, the credit card debt, ran her credit card debt back up. And now she's looking and realizing, well, I can't refinance my house because I locked in a 4% rate and now I'd have to do it at five and a half or six. She does have good credit. Um, so to take more money out and pay a higher interest rate. And it's just a scheme of, in my opinion, the, the credit card companies to raise, you know, to in, in, introduce these 0% loans or 0% you know, for a year and then they jack it up to a mid 20% interest rate. So they get wise to that by the early to mid 50s. Right. And as, as people get older, it's interesting because you said the mid 50s is when they are actually the most financially savvy. And I've noticed that too. I've noticed that people, they've been there, done that, they got the t shirt. And I've often said that our, my, 
for for me the sweet spot is when somebody's been burnt several times through financial annex took us years i mean when we were in the being in the business took us years to kind of figure out that hey you know what this uh active stock picking market timing moving money around uh you know tactical asset allocation was a huge waste of time and that like life insurance is not a good investment. You know, it takes a while for people to kind of figure that out. Um, took a little while for us even to figure out that annuities were just a really bad idea for investors for a myriad, uh, a myriad reasons. And, and hence the thing is, why would we expect the clients to figure out any faster? I mean, you know, it takes a while because you go, well, wait a minute, that person said I'd have this much money at this point in time, and I don't have it. And then all of a sudden, they recognize that there's a problem. And that usually ends up in about their mid 50s. And that's usually when people call up and go, hey, you know what, uh, you know, heard what you guys are doing. And that's when they end up in our offices. Well, for me, it was doing what the industry taught me to do mm-hmm. for 17 years. Mm-hmm. For now, sure. They didn't tell me, hey, here's two different ways that you can work with your clients. You can either use an academic approach or you can use uh, the gambling and speculating approach. Now, well, As much as we'd like to think that people learn from other people's mistakes— and that's how they operate. I watch somebody else, I go, hey, wait a minute, what that person's doing isn't working, let me try something different. It is typically their own mistakes. You know, and I don't know why, I don't know why that is necessarily, we do that, but we don't, we think somehow, you know, that that stuff happens to other people. I am going to be the exception. I am going to make this thing work. I am going to be able to determine when to move in, when to move out, watching markets. There were all kinds of, there was another article about that very topic as well. And uh, that somehow I am going to be the exception because I'm smarter. And maybe it's a, maybe it's the, uh, I guess, the, you know, the bravado of youth. Uh, <laughs> I don't know what it is. Well, I don't but then know. all of a sudden you because re- people let me I want to finish this thought because this is this is something that's been rolling around in my mind. I saw a statistic about younger people. And it's really interesting if you're super young, you know, let's say you're 11, 12 years old, kids are pretty happy, right? Mm-hmm. Fairly happy carefree, everything's great. Then you start to see happiness decline. 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, when they start to recognize that the world is on their shoulders to some extent. And then they get into their 20s and they start to realize, you know, a lot of the things that I thought would happen, I would be able to do, how I'd be able to change the world, they recognize that they can't do that. And then at 29, it's they reach this point going, oh my gosh, it's like this hopeless feeling for, for many people that they reach at that particular point. But an interesting thing happens is they get into their 30s and happiness starts to creep up and creep up and creep up and creep up until we actually reach a greater level of happiness and stability and a feeling of well-being in our late 40s and our early 50s. And we actually start to recognize that, you know, things are okay, but a lot of it's 
this getting rid of and getting past that point in our life where we think we're going to change the world. And a lot of it's because we don't have the experience to realize that we that we don't have that ability. And you know what? It's not even that necessary. It's just learning how to live your life better yourself. And in your mid-50s, this is when you have all this wisdom, but it's been from those past mistakes, and it's been through going through that period of time in your life when you were so frustrated and, and you know, recognizing that you weren't omnipotent and you didn't have all the answers and you couldn't change the world. So I think this is all interesting how it all culminates at that particular point in time. Yeah, I think that the sad part about that is the potential of wealth that is lost mm-hmm. by the mistakes by people in the industry themselves not knowing what's really out there for them to really truly help their clients. Yeah. Like I said, a lot of the stuff that we teach our clients when we when we hold workshops, a lot of it goes back to 1952. I mean, you're talking about 70 years worth of data and Nobel Prize winning data, in fact. And to not be exposed by the industry. And I worked for major firms. I worked for Shearson Lehman Brothers. I worked for Smith Barney. Mm-hmm. I mean, I worked for major firms, major Wall Street houses. And they didn't teach us this to instill our clients with the science of investing to be able to be disciplined and why that discipline will pay off and how they can get market rates of return more consistently and more predictably than what they're getting. The Dalbar study shows that most investors underperform the market. And it's not just by a little. It's by a huge, huge amount. No, it's anywhere from 3 4 5%. And, 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 and many times more. I've seen, you know, seven, eight in some cases yeah, but when over you, longer periods of time. When you look at a difference of three, just 3% for a 30-year period or even a 20-year period, you can be talking about millions of dollars being lost. So um, I think we're still on this because I, I, I like this topic, the exact age when you make your best financial decisions, because we can talk a little bit about some of those decisions and what they might be. That, uh, that people make at older ages. And, uh, you know, I think that where we haven't gone yet, and, and, and you know, it's, it's as you get older, I've seen people go the other direction. As they get older, they become more confident. And I've seen research on this as well, as people actually start to develop more confidence as they get older. But actually what happens is their fluid intelligence wanes significantly after the age of starts to go down age, age of 45 but then it's really gets much lower unfortunately you know in your late 60s 70s and and then all of a sudden people start to make they can go back to making some bad decisions again and uh end up in a situation where you know they undo much of their good decision making in their mid 50s as a result of that yeah, I find that in the article, they talk about a study which shows that most people in their 50s are underestimating their life expectancy by about 10 years. Mm. They're expecting a you know, life expectancy of about 76 when it says that the average um, actuarial estimates are now that person living to 85, uh, 86. Mm-hmm. So if you're not planning properly, 
then that can be a very, very big difference. One thing that was really interesting was that at the age of 53, people have been dealing with financial markets for years and know how to look for the right financial products and minimize fees and payments. And I find that to be very interesting. That is interesting because so often that happens, happens to be a mistake because quite often what fund companies will do is they will cut corners in really bad ways. And like, for example, small company stock funds, uh, value funds, you know, and that's where, you know, when you're using multi-factor investing, that's where the majority of assets typically end up is in smaller company funds. Uh, value funds, because 96% of 20-year periods, that area of the market value does better than growth. And that is where the biggest impact can be if you're cutting corners and doing what fund companies tend to do, which mm -hmm. is that. And indexing works super, super well. And that's what they use in their marketing, is indexing works super, super well with large companies and large international. And that's where you can cut the cost the most. But the reality of it, that's where you ought to have the smallest amount of money, typically, mm -hmm. uh, in an in investment. I say, I say typically because, you know, you, I'm thinking there might be an exception someplace. But, you know, compliance people want you to say typically instead of being absolute about anything. So here, here was another interesting thing that it said in your article. People in their 50s have often experienced enough financial pain to make them more acutely aware of the need to weigh all financial alternatives carefully and avoid mistakes. You're also at an age where you look at retirement savings and realize you're running out of years to make it bigger. Right. And, and I, okay, so what's your takeaway on that one? Because I, I definitely have a, a thought on that. Well, my thought is you, in look, trying to find the, to analyze all the different investment alternatives. Yeah, I think you end up with something called uh, uh, paralysis by analysis. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I can't make a decision because there's so much information. You know, in our a lot workshops, of do nothing. Yeah. we call it emotional-based decisions. Mm -hmm. you know, you, you're basing it on emotion. You're typically going to chase something with a higher rate of return because you're look at what you have, you look at how much you're gonna need for retirement when we sit down and work with clients. You know, we look at what, what's your social security, do you have a pension, how much you're gonna need from your investable assets to generate enough income to make up for the difference based upon what your current expenses are. Mm -hmm. So people will often say to me, well, I'm willing to take more risk because I have to make, make up, up uh, that's exactly where my mind was shortfall of what I don't have or to catch up to where I'm going to need to be when that more often than not is the mistake. Yeah, exactly. And they go into individual stocks. They start to move money around based on what they think is going to happen. Boy, you know, baby boomers are getting older. Uh, this was one that was a few years back and that really fell apart. But baby boomers are getting older and they're going to need more healthcare services. So I need more healthcare stocks. And I go, well, okay, so the companies that are doing healthcare, they're going to want to pay more to use your money in the future because they're actually going to have better businesses and, and they'll have more money coming in. They won't actually need your money as much at all if they've got more money coming in. That doesn't make any sense. And they will, oh, yeah, I guess it doesn't. <laughs> But yeah, I've got to try to make up time. Uh, you know, I, 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 I didn't save enough. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. If you want to learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. 
You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.